Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Nishan Trivasta. Thanks, Ray. This is the RayWenderlich.com podcast. Welcome to episode six for season 11. This episode was recorded on Thursday, the 4th of February, 2021, for release on the 17th of February. This episode was sponsored by the language Esperanto, Kajper, Le Numero S. Did you keep up? I'm Drew Freeman, along with my non-sequitur co-host, Nishant Srivasta. Thanks, Drew. In this episode, we tap into the experience of Ty Smith, who has also contributed to the book Living by the Code. Ty Smith is someone who wears many hats. He's a GD for Android, tech lead at Uber, angel investor, and many more. Let's find out in this episode. Ty, welcome to the show. Thanks, folks. Happy to be here. And I, first of all, I want to thank you because the first thing that I read in your chapter made me very happy. And that is a question that I ask most of our guests is, what do you do for fun when you're not doing code or computer things? And you actually have a list. Well, it's it's staying at home with, with uh, coronavirus quarantine, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there is that. Is everything okay with you and yours? Yeah, I think everything's great. Uh, this, I, I think that uh, when, when the book was was written, that was a much more optimistic and exciting list than what <laughs> most people are doing these days. <laughs> but, well, I guess the traveling and the wine tasting and and the like are out at the moment. Yeah, m- most uh, most of those uh, adventures and sports are a little harder to do these days. But uh, so, where where have you traveled? Where have I traveled uh, during coronavirus? Nowhere uh, before coronavirus. No, 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 no. When you when traveling was part sure. of the. Um, so I started uh, kind of traveling for advocacy, like tech advocacy and public speaking, um, six or seven years ago. Uh, and since then, I've got to you know go all over and visit all kinds of really cool places and speak at tons of events to developers from all over the place you know, from. Uh, Thailand to France to Italy to Canada um, to Sao Paulo, you know, in, in Brazil, uh, all, all kinds of really, really great places. Um, developers everywhere, you know, super smart and enthusiastic and always excited to, to learn and engage with the community. So the wine tasting, I take it, has to stop because you you don't just buy new bottles of wine and taste them at home. You actually like going out to the vineyards. Yeah, yeah, it's a little more fun. You know, I live in uh, the Bay Area, so getting up to uh, Sonoma and Napa, or you know, going down to like Paso Robles or the different regions, it's always fun to kind of see the the agricultural um, areas and and visit the vineyards and meet the vintners and you know talk through their passion for it. Have you made it up into Oregon or Washington? Uh, no, I haven't done any wine tasting in Oregon or Washington, but I've heard great things about you know. The yeah, Valley. there's some wonderful, some wonderful places in in Washington about two and a half, three hours north of Seattle. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. An interesting one that I went to a couple of years ago, um, uh, the Guadalajara Valley, uh, outside of San Diego, across the border, is a really interesting and up and coming uh, wine region. We, uh, I think they have, if I recall, it was like 450 vineyards in, in that very small area. And you know, it was a really interesting day trip coming across the border, taking you know, a tour of a few different beautiful vineyards with that like desert aesthetic. Um, 
lots of lots of really interesting stuff that uh, isn't as popular in the states. Like they're growing a lot of Nebbiolo now, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, hard to hard to kind of find in the U.S., but uh, one of my favorite grape varietals. Now, as you mentioned, we're all in the middle of COVID and the lockdown and the like. I assume you're working remotely now, like like most engineers. Were you originally working remotely with your current company, or was that sort of a COVID benefit? Uh, it's definitely a COVID benefit, but I would say you know I've been at, at Uber five years and been very active in in the community through Uber as well. So that takes me to a lot of conferences and events and, and different things like that. We've always had a huge amount of flexibility when it comes to. Uh, you know, traveling, working remotely, um, flexible work environments. We have an office here, um, had multiple offices before. And, uh, you know, I'd usually spend a few days a week in the office and a couple of days a week, you know, at home focusing. It's a little easier to get into the flow. But now it's pretty much all home all the time. That's right. How are you managing to keep with the uh, the sanity of it all? Are you are you having any kind of variety in in your day, or is it just trudge through? Uh, I definitely uh, can parallel or uh, give an analogy to Groundhog Day. I think that you know, a lot of folks have said similar. Time kind of has disappeared, um, but you know, I, I I really enjoy working with my team and the type of work that we're doing. And it, there's a lot of very interesting and exciting projects that are always coming through. And uh, you know, that that keeps me pretty engaged on the work side of it. Um, while, you know, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty focused on like sustainability and my own well-being. So I've, I've managed during COVID well enough. Now, just so I can follow up, you found your way into Android. And I believe the, the best term in the world you, you used was you were basically voluntold to do a project. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> about uh, 2000 late 2008 or 2009, uh, I was working for a, uh, a little consultancy in Dallas and uh, they had got a project for uh, Zagat, the restaurant review company mm-hmm. that was doing like print books up until then uh, to do you know their first iOS and Android and, and do some investment in the web for them. Um, this was through a sub, it was like subcontracted through another bigger company. And we had, uh, I was doing Ruby on Rails at the time and working on some of the like backend stuff for small clients that we had. And the uh, owner of the company came to me and said something along the lines of, hey, we had, we'd lined up this contractor for the Android version. Um, and, you know, he spent a couple of weeks thinking through some stuff, but um, you know, had to, had to step away. And so now we have a pretty short timeline and, you know, how do you feel about learning Android and delivering this in our you know, few months that we've, we've committed to? And uh, I, I didn't take it as a, as a question. It was, <laughs> it was a nicely phrased uh, command. <laughs> so what was your knowledge base at that point? You said you were doing Ruby on Rails? Yeah, so I was, uh, I'd worked my way through college doing uh, engineering jobs. So I had been a, a professional salary developer for three or four years at that point. This, mm-hmm. this was in, in my final year of school. And uh, you know, I'd, been, I'd worked for a PHP shop for a while. I had, was doing Ruby on Rails for a bunch of clients through this consultancy. I had done a bit of iOS. Um, so kind of spread out, but mostly web, mostly web. 
I'm looking at the shirt. We won't talk too much about iOS, even though that's my <laughs> my general goal here. Um, and this eventually brought you out to the Bay Area. Yeah, so I, I worked in the Dallas area for uh, you know a few years after mm-hmm. graduation and started working for uh, Handmark, which was a uh, actually they built the first app store for Palm. Mm-hmm. So they. Yeah, they uh, kind of an old software company doing like Windows Mobile before the Windows Phone when it was like Windows Mobile five and six and Palm apps and that sort of thing. And um, they had contracted us when I was at the the other one to do Zagat, and I eventually uh, took a full time role with them. So they just kind of poached me from the smaller group they were contracting with, and uh, worked there on. Um, more Android work explicitly. So it was the second version of Zagat. So I'd owned kind of V1 and V2 as the sole developer. And I built Sprint's um, SMS uh, and MMS and group messaging client that was preloaded and, and you know, on a lot of different Android phones at the time. So this was all 2009, 10, 11-ish. So this was very early versions of Android when the tech stack was a lot more atrocious to work with than it is today. And uh, eventually that <laughs> that led me to uh, starting to engage in the community a bit and coming out to the Bay Area for, for conferences and as just an attendee, not not contributing in any way. And, uh, you know, had this desire to, to get out of Texas and uh, live somewhere pleasantly temperature and uh, <laughs> kind of be in the center of things and, and did some interviewing and took a job out in the Bay Area at, uh, at Evernote. Now, you, you talked about the Bay Area being uh, an entirely different beast and not a cheap place to live, but you're also coming out of Dallas, which also is not exactly a cheap city, uh, or, or right. am, I, am I wrong about Dallas there? Uh, it's a, a different different cost bracket altogether, but it, it's not it's not incredibly cheap either. You know, it's a similar, but it's, uh, it's, it's not the Bay area. Austin or some of the other more expensive cities, uh, but your compensation and, and everything else is also much lower mm-hmm. when you're outside of the Bay area for the most part as well. Yeah. I'm based out of Pittsburgh and we've never really had a housing bubble here. Yeah. So, so your compensation is, is much lower in Pittsburgh, but you can also wind up getting yourself a, you know, a, a, a five-bedroom house for under $300,000, and that's unheard of everywhere else. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, when I was there, you know, almost 10 years ago now, you could you could definitely get that uh, that price point. There was, there was nicer areas where it, it was more expensive and you were looking in the 400 or 500 range, but for the most part, you could get a lot of space in most of the suburbs around uh, Dallas-Fort Worth for couple hundred thousand or so. So one of the things you mentioned is that you had a lot of sacrifices to be made in, in moving to, uh, into the Bay. I mean, I, I think it's just a different lifestyle, right? I was, I was used to a very sprawly city where I had a full house and, you know, me and my ex-wife and our two dogs had a three bedroom just, just for us and a mm-hmm. big yard and a two car garage and, uh, you know, and that was a very low price point um, working working in tech and moving out to the Bay Area. You know, when you especially for for um, folks that transplant uh, initially before they've kind of built up their network or really optimized their income or taken advantage of you know, stock and, and different other things that kind of help elevate 
uh, folks that work in the Bay Area, it, it can be pretty challenging for, for folks. Um, lots, a lot less space, uh, but you're also getting used to it. Um, you know, other, other types of lifestyle changes as well, uh, less, less using the car, um, but also finding, you know, an entirely different culture out here where um, people are a lot, it, at least what I found, it, it was easier to uh, make friends and really feel like I was kind of one with the area and you found a lot of diversity in thoughts and, and a lot more ambition. And, you know, that's not to kind of pick on these other areas, but, you know, when you come to the Bay, uh, it, it does kind of pull as a, as a nexus point for a lot of folks that, um, they kind of fall into those categories. And so it's interesting to, to be around that. And you seem to have done fairly well for yourself. You've got a nice room with a large expanse there. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, my, <laughs> for, the, for the viewers, my, my background on Zoom is uh, from the expanse. I'm in a spaceship. So clearly that's <laughs> a reasonable price point in the Bay you're, <laughs> you're a bit of a science fiction nut, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, I I would say that sci-fi uh, was formative in my upbringing and has definitely given given me the inspiration to to get into tech and and continues to make me uh, help me with creative thought and thinking about things differently and looking forward to what we can build and what we can accomplish. But I, I have to ask: Are you a Hoovian? I am, although I uh, to admit it, I, I probably am two or three seasons behind the current. So I hear that a lot from people. It's it's it, it's it, it rotates from when it airs from time to time, and it's hard to keep yeah. up with. Yeah, but I will say I do exactly. enjoy Jodie Whittaker in in the role. It, it's uh, an, a refreshing change. I've heard I've heard great things. All right, let's let's talk let's talk a little more tech. You have held positions, and you speak a lot about the difference between a lead engineer and a managing engineer. Yes. And you have been in both positions and you've now finally settled. You you're back more on the tech side of things. That's right. What is the draw there? What, why, why the tech and not the management? I think, I think that's a very interesting and probably long winded conversation. So um, <laughs> that's what we're here for. You know, I, I've been at Uber about, five years, uh, coming up on five years. And I have uh, been on a number of different teams working with different types of folks and have definitely seen the opportunity to try out different ways of, of impacting and being a leader. Um, for the first couple of years I was here, I was I was working with a manager that uh, you know, was kind of coached me and gave me guidance and like thinking about the sorts of things uh, to be effective organizationally, thinking about interacting with other teams and um, other other leaders and managers and stakeholders. And, you know, I spent a lot of time there and uh, I was tech leading a group. So I was also mentoring folks in the team and helping them grow, um, kind of coming to it from a position of, of caring deeply about the people and uh, empathy and work-life balance and, and sustainability and, and treating folks fairly in the industry. And, um, you know, kind of took a lot of those cares. And uh, at some point, the opportunity arose for me to step into a uh, tech lead manager role, which is um, more unique to some companies, but it's, uh, you know, I, I think it originated at, at Google or one of the fan companies. And it's the idea of a smaller team where the, the manager is able to stay more technical um, and continue to contribute code by, and then it's a very like narrow charter that's very focused in a specific area. 
So I'd been working in uh, developer tools for a while at that point, doing libraries and frameworks and build tools and, and all kinds of things uh, kind of along those and owning a big portfolio of, of products. And uh, we had the opportunity to, to manage there. So I stepped into a tech lead manager role around the same time that the overall senior manager of the group had left. Um, so that was an interesting year and a half or so where, uh, you know, I was uh, a peer to a couple other managers of these sub teams working in developer tools and we were supporting upwards of 400 mobile developers at Uber probably um, with a group of maybe 20 or so people all together spread across couple different managers and uh, all reporting up to a senior director. Um, and at that point, uh, it it was a lot of really interesting growth opportunities and, and challenges, both um, yeah, learning how to, you know, the difference in mentoring someone and managing someone and um, holding folks accountable for their growth and trying to manage stakeholders and, and everything else at the level of, you know, accountability that comes with the manager. Um, and for a lot of a lot of reasons, uh, I eventually decided that um, that 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 role in itself, tech lead manager, uh, often should be split into two people that are able to more effectively do both roles. You know, it should be a, a tech lead who mentors folks, and but is the technical leader with the headspace to really drive that vision, and you know, a technical but not actively contributing engineer and manager um, mm-hmm. so that they don't feel the, the pull or the conflict and having to split their time and, and not, you know, give the, the people on the team the appropriate amount of headspace. So eventually uh, I helped uh, bring on a, a very good friend of mine as a manager uh, at Uber and uh, had stepped down into a tech lead role. And now I'm you know, pretty happy with, with how the organization and the team is looking where you know, I'm one of the leaders in a group where we have a very strong mobile visibility inside of our infra org and we're supporting, you know, 400 plus mobile engineers. And uh, I have the headspace to really think about the the platform's vision and what what we're wanting to build for our developers and for the community and um, and still support and, and really give a lot of uh, headspace to the people, but less of the the manager side where that comes with you know performance review and sourcing candidates and often stepping up to gaps that were missing from the organization like acting as a TPM or you know, a senior manager, if that wasn't there, the, a lot of other areas that would have pulled me. Uh, now I'm able to kind of use that headspace to uh, progress technically and help the team really grow technically. This, um, the way that you explain this, it feels like that uh, basically you went from an engineer to being a tech lead manager. Um, and this was kind of like a career goal for you, I believe. Yeah. And this is why you probably opted for this, right? So uh, my question though, is that this is a unique um, position, I think, for career growth, which kind of only is in the Silicon Valley, I believe. Uh, But for for people, those who are outside Silicon Valley, um, and if they were wanted to have something similar uh, for their career growth, how would they be looking for uh, something similar? Or like, I don't know, maybe in your experience, what do you think would be the right way to approach it? As much as I kind of said there's positives and negatives about the role itself, a uh, common joke that I heard was that um, a tech lead manager is the worst of both worlds. Uh, it's more challenging to be a good engineer and it's more challenging to be a good manager, um, which kind of led me to my conclusion of, hey, most of the time we should probably split this in, into the two different tiers. 
And so, you know, if you think about it that way and you're, and you're talking about engineering growth, uh, I don't think it being Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley or not matters that much. You have uh, a tech ladder for engineers to grow, staying purely technical, and uh, often a ladder for managers to grow and expand their scope and their organizational influence and, you know, how many folks and, and kind of the direction they're going. So that that's common in Silicon Valley, right, where you have the, the IC tech ladder. Um, and I think that's common outside of Silicon Valley as well, uh, to some degree. So that's what I would, you know, encourage folks to think about. Um, whether they want to continue to grow very technically as, as an engineer and past what is considered the terminal level. You know, if you're, if you're looking at many of these companies, you get up to senior engineer, someone can comfortably stay at senior engineer for the rest of their career. There's no expectation of growing past that. But, you know, for the folks that are more ambitious and, and growth oriented and really want to push the bar, they can get up to, you know, senior two or staff or whatever these companies call the, the roles above that. So one, it's kind of identifying, do I want to take on this additional scope and do I want to grow and kind of push the bar here? So at the end of the day, a lot of people just want to spend their time coding cool stuff. And whether or not you're managing, the higher you get, the more influence you're having to kind of exert. And it, it does kind of pull away from some of that cool hacking and individual building that happens. A lot of people seem to think that the tech ladder has sort of a ceiling to it. You know, there's engineer, senior engineer, lead engineer, architect, but there seems to be that that fear that you have to make that bridge to management. And do you feel that that's changing? I, I don't. I think it's perception more than than anything else. So, uh, you know, with with manager tech ladders, you're you're saying you know manager one and two and senior manager and director and VP and 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 you know on and on and on. And I think there's more of an expectation of folks trying to to grow through that that ladder. On the engineer side, I hear a lot of folks that like express the the concern about about like growing and getting up the tech ladder. But at the end of the day, um, I think there's also an unhealthy perception about being a little too focused on that and the expectations on that after getting past the career level. So you have a lot of folks more junior in their career that, you know, and rightfully so want to try to get to senior engineer where they're autonomous and they, people trust them to, to do good work and you know, on projects and, and different things like that. But, but getting past that really uh, is a much more limited pool. And the more that good managers can help folks understand that perception and if they really do want to grow and what that means for that next role versus kind of embrace where they're at and not see that as a downside. I think that's that's a healthier team dynamic. Um, there's a, a book called uh, Radical Candor where the author, uh, I can't think of her name right now, uh, Kim something, um, she, she coins the idea of on a team, you have two different personality types. You have rock stars and, uh, and a rock star is... Um, that, sorry, rockstar and superstar, I think, are the, the two terms. And she views rockstar as like a, a point of stability in the team where you need, uh, you know, you need a lot of folks that are rock stars because they're comfortable where they're at and they're, they're learning and growing, they're providing a point of stability. And that provides some room for a smaller group of folks to really try to, to push up and, and grow and lead that way. And if you have everybody 
trying to fight and grow and 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 push out of the expectation, um, the team dynamics there are, aren't going to be a, necessarily a healthy place to be. That's interesting. Um, I have another question for you. This is, uh, I think, because I was going through the the things that you have done and also like going through your chapter in the book. Um, my question to you is that you got into this dev advocacy or basically improving developer tooling and experience um, because in the in initial days of Android, uh, is what your experience was not good or what? Is this just led you into this? Somehow. I think for a number of reasons, but I think that's a good, uh, that's one good way of phrasing it. You know, if you look at the, the beginning days of Android, you know, when I started, it was 2008 or nine and Eclipse was awful and build tools were awful and the devices sucked. And, uh, you know, there were so many issues. The ecosystem really hadn't developed or matured much at all. Uh, and it was pretty painful to work in, and everybody recognized that. And it was a, it was a common talking point. Um, you know, so there's one element of like just suffering from that perspective, and then two, you know, as you as I continued to work in bigger companies and work with other engineers, it just became very clear uh, that I had a passion about helping, you know, building for developers as opposed to necessarily building for a consumer. Um, you know, when you're building for for a developer, you're building for your peers, and you can get great feedback quickly that helps you hone your own craft and you can kind of see that effect directly on someone else in a very like nuanced and technical way. Um, and so that, that kind of started with a, a side project more or less. I was at Evernote and I was working on the consumer team and for the, for the app, but there just happened to be some projects that were more developer facing that I was able to kind of take ownership on. Um, some of those were uh, building the intent APIs that other uh, apps use to interface with the Evernote app. So I ended up working with Samsung and other partners that wanted to deeply integrate with the app on the device by providing, you know, a rich API. And, you know, that kind of led me to starting to work on our um, OAuth SDK wrapper that used the app natively to do, uh, you know, authentication. And that was kind of my first big push into open source and kind of owning that Android SDK, and uh, that that really just opened my eyes to kind of the the depth of the space and my my passion and interest in that. Um, and with that, I was able to work with a really great developer advocate at Evernote who got me kind of hooked up to a couple of conferences, started speaking about it, and really just just you know lit the fire. And I discovered that passion, and from then on, I was seeking opportunities where I would be uh, focused on um, helping make developers' lives better. Now, your journey to speaking was not an easy one for you, if I remember correctly. You, 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 you like many people, entered into public speaking with terror. Yes, absolutely. It was, um, it, it was something I was very reluctant to do, and, and that's why I kind of invested heavily in it at the beginning. Um, I, I recall early days of Android where I would see you know, videos of uh, some of the original people from Google that were giving talks at you know, the first I.O. Or, or different events. And I was thinking to myself, oh, man, that looks terrifying. Um, but I'd, I'd love to be able to do that someday. But, you know, I can never do that. And, uh, you know, I, the, a couple of years later, I was talking to this developer advocate, uh, Chris Treganos at Evernote, and kind of voiced that as a, man, wouldn't that be cool? But I don't think I could do that. And he, he put a lot of pressure on me. So he's like, no, we're going to make that happen for you. Like, yeah, that, you're going to grow past that. And, uh, you know, we, we submitted to a... Uh, DroidCon 
in London in 2011 or 2012. It was probably one of the first ones they had. And uh, that, you know, it was terrifying first time around. And that accountability of having that schedule talk is kind of what like drove me to, to try to get there. And over time, I just did that again and again and again. And, you know, after a couple of years of that consistency, it started to get very comfortable and easy to do. And, uh, you know, I, at this point, I've probably spoken at hundreds of conferences and the, you know, it comes very, very naturally and comfortably, but that was very in, intentional, right? When I have folks say, oh, you look so comfortable up there. How do you do that? It, you know, it's, it's, it's practice. Do you have any advice that you give people who are thinking of going into public speaking for, uh, for conferences? Yeah, um, it depends on what they're coming to it for. Um, you know, I often suggest something similar if their concern is fear of public speaking. It's, you know, go ahead and submit an abstract. Um, I offer feedback and stuff on it and set up that point of accountability that forces yourself. And then do that two or three times and then kind of reflect, uh, is this is this for me or is it not? Uh, and that's definitely for, for the... Um, the person who has kind of a fear of it. The other one I often hear is, oh, that that would be fine, but I don't have anything good to talk about or I could think of the topics. And, you know, for that, there's there's a whole variety of topics. People want to learn everything from beginner content to advanced content. Mm-hmm. So kind of losing the expectation that you have to be an absolute expert on something and give a very in-depth uh, tech talk on that, I think is, is pretty healthy. Uh, the other interesting thing is when you're, giving the talk on something, the research and the prep work for that will help you become uh, more more fluent in that piece of technology. So I've definitely uh, subscribed to give talks before that I hadn't yet played with um, <laughs> on, just so that it would force me as a, as a, as a teaching or as a learning function to, to do that. So one, one example of that is I gave a talk at Gradle's conference, I don't know, six or seven years ago. Um, that was writing uh, writing Android build scripts in Kotlin. And this was before there was any official Kotlin script support. Um, and it was mostly me looking at it and saying, that, that would probably work. How about I submit an abstract on that? And at the time, I didn't even know if I could get it working for the talk. I just thought it would be a fun thing to kind of explore and play with. And, uh, and it turns out I was, I think I was the first one to get that working and, and submitted one of the first PRs to Gradle to support uh, Kotlin script. Turned out pretty well, I guess. Now we have uh, official support, probably from absolutely from. But if it hadn't, yeah. if it hadn't gone well, that would have been a fun talk too. It would have been more of a retrospective style. We're like, hey, I tried to do these things, and here were the blockers, and here's how I communicated it to the Gradle team or whatever. Um, it could have been a, di- a different type of talk, but it would have been interesting as well. But you bring a very good point here that um, a lot of. Uh, uh, developers and engineers who are now getting into the industry, they kind of think that um, maybe it's also because of the social media. Sometimes people are tweeting about that, oh, I'm making the the presentation at the last moment or something. Uh, so they don't yeah. understand how much work there goes in. Uh, as you said, that there's a bit of a research that you need to do, you need to figure out. And there's like, then you learn the technology to to basically present in front of, of people, um, which I guess is, is not very common for, for people, who's, those who are just getting exposed to this right away and and they'll see this i would say that 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 common stereotype is definitely a, a point of uh humor and, and maybe bragging rights in the devrel community um i have definitely seen that myself but that comes from a uh, a long position of having a public 
uh, persona and comfort in that and deep domain expertise. And I've definitely done my fair share of that where I'm working on the talk on the plane to the conference. Um, <laughs> but that that is a definitely a different perspective to think about than your, your person who's wanting to get into it for the very first time. And, uh, you know, is, is wanting to feel a sense of uh, belonging and, and welcoming energy from the community and wants to feel like they're doing something that, that has value and is, uh, is of quality. Also, I think you already built up the, the, the experience of, of handling that situation, right? Like if, if someone is yes. new, they just can't just go and do it that way. That doesn't work out. It's the experience is the practice, I believe. Um, that's useful. Absolutely. But uh, I, I, I want to actually stop you at this and I uh, want to go back to something that we were discussing. And this is about developer advocacy. You mentioned that and I actually got this question from one of my friend. Um, I think as an engineer, people look at uh, developer advocates as people, those who are promoting a product uh, or something like that. But maybe it's more than that. And, and you could maybe shed a bit more light on this. Sure. Sure. So um, the first first things, uh, you know, a disclaimer, I, I'm not a developer advocate, like by by trade, right? That's not my my title. I, I like to stay purely in the engineering world. But as one of my uh, mentors at, at Google said, he, he said, Ty's the best DevRel that's never been a DevRel that I know. So, you know, I, I, I'd like to be very involved in the space. And, and I, I feel like I would probably do very well at that full time. But... I want to stay focused on building something entirely and then with a side percentage of my time, go out and advocate for that and, and teach people. Um, and that, that percentage kind of changes if you're doing DevRel or Dev Advocacy as your full-time job, or maybe you're not also um, owning the, the the roadmap for the thing that you're, you're building. Uh, but you know, to your question around developer advocacy and it being more of a just pitching a product, mm -hmm. it really depends on the company. And it depends on the success of the developer advocate. So the more successful ones that I've seen, um, and you know, I I think a great example is is um, my significant other Chloe Condon. I helped mentor her into the tech industry and, and get her into DevRel, and now she has helped a lot of companies move to the perspective of investing in their community organically and letting that uh, that technological respect then kind of double back and help influence their adoption of their their technologies. So with that, it's often about investing in the community through generalized contributions, you know, engaging in, in meetups and talks and um, open source on what they care about and having your product as kind of a side effect of that, not the main pitch. Because as soon as you're pitching the product directly, like then, then you are a salesperson and that, that kind of loses respect in the developer community. Um, but if you have someone who is instead seen as a thought leader and Android or JavaScript or, or you know, Docker or whatever the, the, the domain is, yeah. then they're able to relate to the developer and really understand the mm. pain points. And then, you know, sometimes that is with a solution from the company and sometimes it's not. But at the end of the day, the, the customer, the developer is um, kind of in the front for the developer advocate as opposed to the product. There's a lot of things that are also changing in the mobile industry. You said that you've been like doing mobile for some time now and there's like couple of things and you have I think you're very vocal about uh, all the different frameworks that that are out there for I, I think right now you're doing Android but you've obviously maybe taken a look at iOS and then this react native flutter I think there's cotton sure. multi-platform that's coming in um, what's your thoughts on all of this change that's that's coming right now absolutely uh, I think a, a 
a good engineer uses the best tool for the job. And we often see in this industry too many people that kind of stick to a sense of idealism or, or you know, being the, the fanboy or fangirl or mm-hmm. um, really sticking to and, and defending that in kind of an unhealthy way. Um, and, and if you're thinking about it from the perspective of using the best tool for the job, the, the job is much different at a small startup who's just trying to find product market fit and is likely going to go under versus, you know, a, a big company that needs to have a scaled out user experience that works in, you know, a huge range of markets and device types. So when I talk to startups and they say, hey, what should I use? You know, should I build native apps? Should I do React Native? Should I do it on the web? Um, it really depends on their use case. You know, React Native, um, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of React Native, but I think it has a, you know, some great use cases. I think if you're a small startup and your primary uh, interaction with your consumer isn't necessarily dependent on a super high quality, performant, um, scaled mobile application, mm-hmm. and you're trying to find product market fit and you have, and you're resource constrained, yeah, React Native is probably a decent choice. Um, you know. Flutter is another interesting one. Uh, maybe it's a little less uh, reusable as React Native since for these small startups and the people with this use case, they have something that's sharing the, the resource uh, domain in their engineers. You know, if it's a web engineer and JavaScript and React, that's very translatable between probably what they're doing on the web and, and what they're doing in mobile. Um, I think one of Flutter's downsides is that it has, you know, even with their web support and desktop support and other stuff that they've tried to put, it is kind of pitching an entire ecosystem to invest in and learn. And um, that, that competes more directly with native mobile than it does with something like React Native. So they kind of lose out on a lot of that market from companies that, that don't have as much to invest in, in learning entirely new technology. And then, you know, you have things like Kotlin Multiplatform, which... Very interesting and, and probably will get a nice adoption in use cases where that makes sense as well. Um, but, and that's going to depend again on the uh, the position that the company's in that needs to adopt that. Do they have a, uh, do they already have a bunch of Swift engineers and they um, want, you know, are investing there with a mm-hmm. huge code base? They're not going to migrate to Greenfield uh, Kotlin multi platform. Um, but maybe if you have a team that is, trying to do something new and they are limited in headcount and they're having to integrate with an existing native system, that could be a good choice to, to build their specific functionality in that. Now, I really appreciate you saying the right tool for the right job. And that's always been my uh, my belief and uh, understanding what your market is. I remember many, many years ago when uh, Douglas Adams came to an Apple conference to talk about his uh, his video game, and he said, I will not be releasing this on the Apple platform as an Apple lover himself, because he says, I want to not go out of business. Yeah. If we get enough <laughs> sales on the PC, then we'll release it for the Mac. And and there was just huge derision there because it was people not hearing the business case of it. But Absolutely. on the side of, you know, we go beyond the right tool for the right job. There is still a little bit of fan, fanism and the like. And I have to ask you, is there currently a technology that you're playing in that you really are enjoying? Or is there a technology that you really would love to go play in? One thing that I see coming in the industry for big companies, and that's something I'm, I'm investing in pretty heavily for Uber, is uh, remote development for, uh, for mobile engineers, uh, for Android specifically. I think there's more constraints on the iOS side than there are on Android. 
Um, that's that's something that there's been some discussion of recently in the community. Different blogs have popped up. Uh, JetBrains put out a uh, open source prototype tool called Projector that allows you to kind of natively render their um, the IDE calls through JavaScript, and so you can kind of pass that over. So I've been investing internally on, on kind of kicking up a team and playing around with what it looks like for us to, to do remote development. And we have a, a very, very, very large code base. We have one of the largest Android and iOS code bases in the world. And with that, building on a, a standard developer laptop is, uh, you know, you have something that requires a huge compute resource to get done. It's not rocket science to throw a large number of resources at that thing to get it done, right? Um, you know, we have thousands of modules that need to be built, and I have, you know, I'm looking at this MacBook Pro that has six cores and you know 32 gigs of RAM. Of course, that's going to be uh, a resource constrained, you know, compilation and developer experience and everything else when we have you know, really beefy servers in the cloud. So, you know, I've been investing in how we can get a native feeling experience, native. Uh, development feeling experience through uh, you know remote resources where we have a big build. Uh, sorry, my my Google Home just went off. Uh, you know where, where we have a uh, huge number of cores and and RAM and and everything else that could be used. So I've been playing a lot with that, a lot of like uh, Linuxy stuff and and hooking it up through the shell. And um, now I'm starting to kind of figure out how our how our team can invest in that for a more productionized and polished environment. I wish we had more time for the interview. Of course, we do put the entire interview and some of the stuff that we had to cut into a YouTube episode, and that'll be dropping in just a few weeks, and we hope you'll watch it there. Ty, this has been, like I said, a lot of fun. This is some really great stuff, and I'm really happy that you came and joined us today on this episode. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Of course. Thank you guys for having me. Um, if you want to find more about Ty, you can find his website is tysmith, T-Y-S-M-I-T-H dot me. Twitter is tsmith. You can always find Nishant on Twitter at nisrules, N-I-S-R-U-L-Z, and, or R-U-L-Z, because you are in Europe. Yes. <laughs> I am Podcast Drew. Coming up in the next episode, Corey Lee Ladislaw is going to be on, an international keynoter and avid sketch noter. And it'll be wonderful talking with her. Two weeks after that, Fernando Quejas is going to be on. And if you have any questions for, not, for Fernando, almost got that one out without tripping through it. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at raywenderlich.com. In the meantime, we will be seeing you again with our next episode in two weeks, Corey Lee Ladislaw. For Nishant, and thank you, Ty, again. I'm Drew Freeman, and we will take things back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendelk.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.